Welcome. My name is Kelly Bearden. I'm a classical musician turned creative entrepreneur, and this is the best platform for musicians that are looking to shape their career by thinking outside the box. Kate, thank you so much for being here today. I know we mentioned briefly before we started the recording of today's podcast that I am so excited to have you here. I know you do a lot of great work on social media. Your research in women, specifically in brass, is outstanding. And I'm excited to talk about all that today. But I want to jump way back, if possible, to the very, very beginning of your music career and journey. Was horn the first instrument that you played or was there something that led you to horn? Horn was the first instrument that I played, but I'm a terrible, terrible professional musician because I did not want to be in band at all. It was the last thing I wanted to do. I wanted to be in PE. And my mom said, you need to be well-rounded. You're going to do one year in band, whether you want to or not. And that is how I started my music career. It's it wasn't one of those like, story. <laughs> not one of those, like, I always dreamed of being a musician. No, well, uh, I, I was forced to be in band. I picked the French horn by closing my eyes and picking the one that sounded pretty. Great <laughs> tactic. Awesome. Hey, it worked. I mean, we're here. That obviously, <laughs> obviously served you well. <laughs> it did. Uh, to, my, to my parents' dismay, I fell in love with band. I fell in love with the people and the music and everything and, Aww. you know, just kept doing it and kept doing it and kept doing it. And now I'm going to do it until I can't anymore. Oh, that's awesome. So obviously it's it's been a journey and we're talking a little bit about what, you know, today, the, the career journey and how you've gotten there. So at what point did you know, you know, now it's not just something I have to do, but this is actually really cool. And I maybe actually would like to do this for a career now. I joined a youth orchestra in high school, right around okay. when I was the age of like figuring out what you want to do with life and what you want to go to college for. Yeah. And at that point I was really good at math and I was really good at band and I joined the youth orchestra and I, it was the first time I played in an orchestra. So I heard the cellos playing. We were playing like, I think some Schumann or something. And I was just like, mm. that one, not differential equations, cellos. I like that. Let's do this. That's awesome. So when you sat down, I know I've heard a lot of people say things like, you know, I was told if there's anything else that you can picture yourself doing, do that instead. That was something that I was told, you know, there was a lot of you get a lot of naysayers, honestly, especially in high school, when you're saying that you want to go into music, people start to, I think, panic a little bit around you. Like, what is this going to look like long-term? Did you have any of that? Or was everyone just totally on board once you found your thing? Both my parents are actually artists. My mom's a painter, my dad's a printmaker. So my whole life I grew up around the, well, we love doing this, but we don't make a lot of money. And, you know, that's the lifestyle. So both my parents kind of sat me down and were like, you know what this is going to look like. So it was less of a, hey, don't do this, but more of a, you know exactly what you're signing up for. Are you really okay with that? Yeah. Like, let's be Um, realistic and make sure on the same page. Yeah. But otherwise, my family was incredibly supportive of my music career, my musical journey, and they're super proud of everything that I do. That is awesome. That's so cool. Now, right now you are in a second master's program, correct? At Yale. And so you've got some exciting performances coming up and everything too. and, And we'll talk about that in a second. But Second masters. I mean, this is an exciting decision. I think it's something that not a lot of musicians get the opportunity to do or decide to do for themselves. Obviously, you were going to school online a lot during COVID, and so I'm sure that has something to do with it. But why a second masters, and in particular, why a second masters and not a doctorate program? I'm very curious. I finished my master's degree on Zoom, obviously, because of COVID pandemic lockdown. I, I lived in Manhattan, yeah. and which got hit the worst. So I, I kind of, I finished my master's degree. And at that point I had left the city to go 
be with my family, just be close to them, buy them groceries when it was dangerous to go to the store, that kind of stuff. Hmm. And it was like, oh, I had this whole career and network built in New York. And now I'm back in Florida with no job prospects and nothing to do. So I started looking into like training orchestras and other pro I actually did yeah. end up applying for uh, doctoral programs as well. And well, with Yale, I applied for their doctoral program when I got into this secondary master's program. And I was like, oh, well, I could go get a doctorate at these schools or I could go to Yale and get another master's degree. And that sounded really, really nifty, especially since it's still in the Northeast up where all of my old connections had been. So it kind of worked out nicely to put me adjacent to where I used to be and in a pathway where I could still interact with all those old connections, but make really awesome new ones at this prestigious university that I'd only heard great things about. That's awesome. It's fun to see the twists and turns of everyone's music career, of course, but when we're looking at education in particular, because so much of it isn't up to us, like we don't get to decide, for example, what program you get placed in or what schools you get into, there has to be that mutual connection and mutual fit. So much of this is out of our hands. And I think it's a wonderful thing and it's an exciting thing in a lot of ways because whatever's supposed to happen happens for you. And those bridges get built ahead of you so that you can make those opportunities happen. At the same time, it can be a little frustrating. And, you know, when we're talking about funding and things like that too, it can get really complicated and, you know, can kind of um, take people out of the game or, or alter the path for what we closed our eyes and, and thought our career path was going to look like. Now, in the last few years, I think you've absolutely made the most of this. Um, for anyone listening right now, the way that I know Kate is through her social media. She is prolific and so, so good at outlining you know, how-to videos and tutorials and warm-ups and techniques and things for the horn players. Um, and it's just been a really fun thing to watch and, and find some inspiration for myself, also for our clients, and, like, and sharing that with them and encouraging them to check out what you're working on. But I think at the same time, doing that social media and being so prolific while you're also doing a second master's, while you're also so focused on your own research and your own practicing and your own progress, your own projects and performances, how are you balancing all of this right now? It's a lot. <laughs> all of the projects that I work on are related to the things that I want to be doing. Um, hmm. So my research is, is stuff that I want to be thinking about. I want to be exploring and expanding my own knowledge on. And it may not seem like it, Every single thing I put on social media has to do with how I'm thinking about playing the French mm. horn and how I'm thinking about practicing or how I'm, my students, uh, I teach a lot of private students. So sometimes the ideas that I'm, I'm putting online on Instagram or on TikTok are coming straight out of problems that my students are struggling with. Um, so I guess I'm saving as much brain energy as I can by being efficient and tying it all in together. <laughs> I love that. So what does that look like? You finish a lesson and you maybe worked through something directly with that student or coach them on something particular, and then you sit back down and hit record right away? Like, this is top of mind. I'm just going to go for it. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I find that in my own personal practice, I kind of develop these like clouds of ideas where I'll work through this process of how I'm mm. practicing something or how I'm thinking of something for a couple of weeks at a time. And then typically like whatever I'm processing ends up being what my students are processing around the yep. same time because it's, it's on the front of my mind. So I'm hearing it and they're playing um, kind of just that. Got it. So there's like a theme, like a, a topic of the, the month or the couple week sequence. It makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of teachers find well, for example, my own studio this past summer, it was embouchure in particular. Like I just got 
really excited about embouchure exercises and like went back and printed off a whole bunch of things for my master's program and uh, created a few of my own documents and training materials. And all of a sudden, all of my students, you know, whether they liked it or not, <laughs> had all these different exercises incorporated. So I think it's common to go through cycles like that. But a lot of that is very student driven for me. Like, what am I hearing that I don't have time to address in audition season that now that we have downtime, this is what we need to hit. And you kind of follow their season. So it's interesting to hear it more follow your path and what you're you're working on right now. Speaking of which, you have upcoming performances. So you told me just before this a really kind of fun story about how this came to be, but you're soloing with the Yale band coming up in February, yes. correct? I'm playing okay. a Melifunk concerto by Ryan Williams called Shades of Red with the Yale band on February 10th. It is to my knowledge, the only piece of repertoire ever written for the mellophone as like a solo instrument. And this will be the second performance of it ever. So oh I'm very gosh. excited to to be the, the vessel for this performance and to play that music for an audience who has no idea what's coming for them. Oh, that's awesome. Is this the first U.S. performance by any chance? I'm... No, no. no? Both okay, of them right will, will be in the country. Ah, very cool. And how did this come to be? Because as we kind of talked about before, Yale doesn't have a master's level band program. It's not an ensemble that is structured. And obviously this is a band accompaniment piece, so it can't be put with the orchestra. It came to be through a lot of different vehicles, um, but uh, the band director, Dr. Duffy, is a huge proponent for new music and pushing the barriers of what wind band repertoire is. Um, he commissions a whole bunch of works. And the second he heard about the Melophone Concerto, he was like, Yale band has to play that. When do you want to do it? <laughs> That's um, so and cool. he has been a champion for getting this piece performed. And that I'm, very, awesome. I'm very grateful for him. And I think this is important because it's so, especially with new music, it has to have a champion to be really, really candid. Like the canon of repertoire that we're all used to hearing, the uh, whole sweet knee flat 57,000 times in our mm -hmm. career, it gets played and honestly like used and abused so often that if someone's not taking that on, if you are not taking that on, if Dr. Duffy's not taking that on, it doesn't get heard again. Like there's one performance of so many new pieces and then the second, third, fourth performances are harder to come by, which is frustrating for composers. I think it's also really frustrating for instrumentalists. Like I'm sure you would be thrilled to play more mellophone repertoire if it existed. I am. And it, thankfully, I, like I have this social media online platform and I'm really hoping that obviously I'm going to be posting like, A, how I'm working on it and how I'm practicing mm -hmm. on it. So people are already seeing me playing mellophone way more than they're seeing anyone else play mellophone. But afterwards, I'm going to be posting clips of the performance and other behind the scenes stuff from it all. So hopefully that is going to inspire, A, more people to play mellophone stuff and B, more composers to go, oh, wow, I can write for that instrument. Cool. Mm. Let, let me do that. There's so few repertoire. What an opportunity for my work to be expanded. Like, hopefully it becomes a little more of a, a trampoline for the instrument. That makes total sense. I saw a TikTok I think it was last night. It was like an ad for TikTok and they showed, I'm trying to remember who it was, but they they showed someone searching. It was like super niche instrument was the search that they put in on TikTok and it came back with theremin. And I was like angry. I looked at my husband and said, that's not niche. <laughs> like we all know that exists. That's not unique. That's like, you know, it's using a lot of movie soundtracks. It's a common sound effect. This is something that's honestly kind of prolific as a, you know, comparatively for niche instruments. He's like, yeah, but I don't think everybody else knows what that is. Like, you know, you got a music degree, so you're aware, but it is something that you have to call attention to, you know, now it's on TV and people are probably thinking, 
what is a theremin? Like I'm sure the Google searches and TikTok searches have gone through the roof in the last couple of days, but it is kind of shocking to think about things that we're all just so used to seeing. And especially when you march frequently, mellophone is commonplace. This is something we see at the university level on a yearly basis played in you know dozens and dozens and dozens of field band shows. At the same time, the average person doesn't even know what it is. And that's a really bizarre phenomenon. Yeah, especially like people outside of uh, like state school. I'm uh, mm-hmm. sorry, but like uh, conservatories, there are no marching bands in conservatories. There are no marching yeah. bands in private schools. So unless you're at like a major research institution or a state school, you're not seeing a marching band instrument. You're not seeing a yeah. phone. Once you're in the professional field, which is where people spend, you know, the majority of their life is outside of school. You're not seeing that instrument. You're not experiencing yeah. that with any kind of regularity. Yeah. Well, it sounds like marching has been a huge part of your career and something that you obviously experienced in undergrad, but you've done a lot more outside of school. So share a little bit more about this passion for Mellophone, how this all came to be and, you know, how you've kind of created a, a pathway here for yourself and really getting specific in your interests. So I, uh, you know, I did high school marching band, like most people are required to in high school. And one of our, um, he didn't work for our band, but he was our, a friend of our band director. So he came and helped out. He taught mm. at the Troopers Drum and Bugle Corps. And at the time he was like, hey, you're like really good at this. You should come audition for the Troopers. And I was like, there's no way. I'm not marching drum corps. Um, and then lo and behold, one of my friends actually dragged me out to a drum corps audition. Um, <laughs> just knocked on my door. I said, like, get in the car. We're going. And I ended up marching four summers of drum corps. I marched two with the Boston Crusaders and two with Carolina Crown. And awesome. after marching four years, I went straight into teaching. Um, hmm. And I, this summer was my fourth year teaching on the road. So I officially taught as many years as I marched, which was my original goal as, as a drum corps educator was to give back what I took. Um, oh, that's cool. And I'm going to keep doing it again this year because I absolutely love teaching drum corps. I currently work at the Blue Stars where I teach brass. And this coming summer, I'm starting a new job at the Blue Devils teaching visual. So very cool. Lots of drum corps in my future this summer. (laughs) It seems like this is a theme for you. Things that we're not super thrilled about suddenly become passions, which I really like. Do you feel like some of this, and maybe I'm getting a little too deep, and if I am, of course, just shoot me off this path. But do you feel like a lot of this habit comes from like knowing the things that you're already good at and liking those things and not wanting the variety oh or is i hate it more... change okay that's no, <laughs> that's no secret i absolutely hate change. you ask my mother she will agree with you wholeheartedly oh that's hysterical <laughs> so okay you're in a field where we we don't like change but yet we're in a field where you're also pushing the envelope a little bit in your research now i'm very curious a lot of your research for those that aren't aware is specifically in women in brass and underrepresentation of women in brass. And we're talking about drum corps. This is definitely prevalent in drum corps. There's just a lot fewer females across the board, and then especially in brass instruments for drum corps. But even when we're looking at the music field on whole, working in academia, um, playing in professional orchestras, there is a huge disadvantage right now. And the the skew is entirely male um, and has been you know, historically. So we're kind of coming back and battling back from that. But what sparked a lot of this research for you or how did you get started down that path? Obviously through my own lived experiences, like I'm a woman mm-hmm. and I play brass instrument and there aren't a lot of people who look like me who do the thing that I do, especially with my drum corps background. And there was a summer, um, if you're not familiar with drum corps, there are usually about 80 brass players in a horn line. And there was a summer where there were only six other girls in our horn line. 
It was me and six others. Oh my goodness. And that wasn't that far from the summer with the most. The summer with the most, there were 15. So like that, that level of underrepresentation that we see in classical music is just squished even smaller in drum corps. And, you know, nothing is ever going to stop me from doing something that I want. I was raised by a family who told me I could do whatever I want, whenever I want. And I intend to do that for the rest of my life. Um, But having all those lived experiences in ensembles and classrooms, essentially where no one is like me or no one teaching me looks like me, Mm. really brought out this this voice in me that was like, Ooh, but how come none of my teachers in four years of drum corps were women except one? How come there aren't that many women teaching brass in colleges across the United States? That's what I'm looking at right now. Um, that percentage is actually the 14%. Um, and that has fueled this like little bug in the back of my brain going, okay, why can, can we figure out why can we look at all of the different tributaries that contribute to this huge problem that we're having in brass playing right now, which is gender representation among other representation issues we're also having. But yeah. um, Yeah. It's hard. Classical music has always, and obviously marching feeds into this because it's, it's bred out of Western art music, but it was this silo of, you know, white European people <laughs> creating their own music. And that was like the cultural music in a lot of ways. And then as it expanded and, and has grown and it's become more prevalent worldwide, I think it still has carried a lot of that baggage with it. And it's frustrating. It's very frustrating. Like to be in a, a studio where, you know, maybe there's 27, even like in woodwinds, which there is much more equal representation. It's at the university level and, and the student base, but you can be in a studio of you know 30 clarinet players and it'll still be 10 females and are they in the top spots not consistently (laughs) you know it's not it's not divided equally at the at the top of that pyramid and it's really hard to see when you're in school and obviously this is something that can get a little touchy so i'm I'm trying to like toe the line right now and be so careful my words but it is frustrating and it creates a lot of frustration when you're in school so while you're researching this is this something that creates any tension for you in your, you know, your current work and your research as you're presenting this or talking about it with your own professors or when you're thinking back on professors that you've worked with in the past and the representation that you've had, is it awkward (laughs) to be talking about these things in a room that is male dominant? I've been very fortunate to have incredibly supportive educators of all of the things that I do. I mean, I'm Playing right. telephone with a band in a private school called Yale. I, I don't do normal <laughs> things all that often. And all of my teachers have always been very supportive of all the wacky right. stuff Kate is doing. Uh, it's always awkward to talk about gender representation to yeah. men. They don't, they, that makes them uncomfortable because it should. Um, mm-hmm. But it hasn't created any kind of friction in like my professional right. life. Most people that I've talked to are like, wow, I'm like, so glad you're doing that because no one else is doing that and somebody needs to. And I am more than happy to be that somebody if it means that new information is getting to people who need to hear it, who can make new decisions, who can speak up, who can help advocate for change or help progress our activity in any way that they can. That is so inspiring and so exciting because I think that every, I'm sure every woman has their own stories of what has happened to them in their career path and the friction that they've come up against and the the frustration that they've had. I know I certainly have my own and it's so difficult to reconcile that with this idea that yes, somebody needs to do something. And is it going to be me? 
I don't know, is it going to affect my career? Is it going to impact how I'm perceived? Um, you know, we've seen plenty of stories that it does impact how women are perceived historically or the job opportunities that they get and it impacts their career path. And it's frustrating. And so to be making this change internally and to be doing this work associated with the university and be doing this research for your degree, I think is really stinking cool. And it's really important work. So thank you for doing it. <laughs> I think it's kind yeah, of Yeah, I'm actually big not doing there. it as a part of my degree. It's it's research that I started before I got to Yale. Um, it's this all independent research. Was it with the, I, oh my gosh, I totally assumed it was with your first master's degree. Nope. That's even cooler. Holy cow. Now, a lot of the research that you're doing right now, you're putting out surveys and, and trying to get an idea of what things look like at universities. How has the response rate been? <clears throat> Are you getting back a pretty diverse group of university respondents or do you feel like it's a lot in state schools or a lot in private schools in particular? So I did my main research study. I'm, I'm actually collating a document right now to publish. I've been doing it for awesome. longer than I should have because it's taking me forever. Because <laughs> uh, well, it's not did, with your degree. <laughs> it's a lot on top of everything else. I did my initial study um, in 2021 and the response rate, I, I reached out to I think 168 women who teach brass at universities in, in the United States. That was my, my sample size was the United States. And my response rate was like 60%. It was incredibly high for yeah. any kind of research study. Usually your expected wow. response rate, I, I believe is like 13%. So the fact that more than half of these women reached, like, reached back out, did the survey and sent it to me was incredible. Wow. Um, I'm really working with some moving statistics, just, I mean, obviously upsetting statistics, but in regards to the interest in this kind of work, it seemed like almost everyone that I talked to or that participated in my research study were just like, wow, yes, do it, please get it out there, show it to somebody else, help move this forward. Because when, when doing my research before the research study, the last study that looked at gender equity in brass playing was done in 1997. It's been a little while. <laughs> yeah, like no one has bothered to do it. Wow. Since. Um, That's so. so interesting. And I I think it's something that because it's uncomfortable to talk about, you know, obviously we kind of put off a little bit. So again, I commend you for, for taking this one on, but especially to do this outside of your university work and all the other coursework that you're doing in preparation and practicing, it's, it's really outstanding. Now, again, you balance a lot of other things. It's not just this research project that you're working on right now and talking about this and promoting it and coming on podcasts like this to kind of spread the word that you're working on this. But in addition to your coursework, you also are doing other really incredible educational work that will support brass players and, and horn players specifically. And some of that work I think has been done with smart music, correct? Yes. So I wrote a course last year for Con and Selmer actually. Okay. Um, and it was cross-listed. Con and Selmer has their own online platform called Music Professor. Hmm. And what I did is I wrote two years of beginning horn playing lessons. So you can take the course and it gives you two years of learning from I've never played any instrument in my life before to I'm playing some like grade two solos. I can read music fluently. I know all the fingerings, all the notes, all the rhythms. And the course was cross-posted on Music Professor as well as Smart Music, which is now Make Music Cloud, I think. Yeah. <laughs> transition. A lot, of, a lot of transition here. <laughs> That's really cool. So as, as this has kind of grown, and obviously I think all of this has happened since your undergrad, correct? In the last <laughs> couple of years. How is all this coming to be? Because I'm sure people are listening right now and they're thinking like, okay, I'm in my undergrad or my master's and 
she's doing like six incredible things <laughs> outside of her coursework. And how do you like, how do you get a partnership with Con Selmer? How do you create these research studies? How are you reaching out and, and creating all this traction for yourself? How did these things come to be? Is it just like that sheer force of will that we kind of talked about before? <laughs> partly that, partly making use of my network. Um, mm. I am any mentorship program that there is, I will apply for any opportunity to pick somebody's brain or talk shop or someone that I worked with a couple years ago that I see is coming through town. I'll get coffee with them. I'm always trying to keep my network alive and thriving so that I can take advantage of like, that's why you have a network. That's why you have a community who knows what you're doing and is interested in your work so that you can be interested in them. And it's an exchange of knowledge and a like mm. little highway for, for evolution. Um, so the, Con and Selmer job was sent to me. I applied for it, um, but it was sent to me by somebody that I worked with when I taught at the Arizona Academy, which is another drum corps. And I got that job based off of somebody that I worked with when I worked at Carolina Crown. And like, so it's just how everything kind of intermixes and connects with each other. I think this is something that we're not taught in school. And I talked about this recently with another person on our podcast too, that networking is a skill that you have to practice like anything else. It takes repetition. It takes a lot of time and using that network and feeling comfortable reaching back out to people and asking for these kind of connections or even letting people know that you're open to these kind of connections is a challenge. So when you think about this network that you've built up over the last couple of years, and obviously you've worked with an incredible amount of people through all these different jobs and the work that you're doing right at the universities, how are you staying in contact? How are you making the most of these connections? And is there anything that you know you could tell yourself, let's say five years ago about networking in general and making the most of that? What would you want to maximize in that process? As silly as it's going to sound, I think a lot of it has to do with my online social media presence because I'm not necessarily keeping up with all of these people or sending them what I'm up to. But, you know, Kate Warren Music posts on Instagram three or four times a week. And that shows up on people who are interested in what I'm doing yep. speed. And they see that and maybe they don't care how to circular breathe or how to multiple tongue. But they, they see what I'm doing. They see what I'm up to. And when something comes up, they're like, oh, yeah, didn't, didn't Kate just write a book? And she, like, teaches a bunch of beginner horn students. And we, we need somebody to write a beginner horn course. That, that connection gets made through the stuff I'm already just putting out there. and that. I, I truly think that the way that I pour into my social media helps vitalize a lot of those connections and just keep me in the back of everybody's brain. Like, oh yeah, Kate's doing all those cool things. Maybe she'll do a cool thing for me. I'm so glad that you said this because I feel like it's something that we're all afraid of. Like posting on social media is this like kind of big, bad, scary thing when you're starting. Like, what if I do it wrong? What if people like judge me for it or if they don't like the content that I'm putting out? I know when we even started our business, there was a period where I, oh gosh, it was probably six to eight months where I was finding clients through Facebook because I was just starting conversations on Facebook groups. And that's how people were finding me. And then they'd like message me and ask me more questions and we'd get on a call and then it kind of grew that way. And at the time I still was not posting openly. Like I was not putting up status updates or like posts on my own social media saying I do this. Or like my cover photo wasn't about my teaching at that time or my coaching. It was terrifying. It's, you know, you don't want to be perceived in a negative way or you, especially when it comes to teaching and pedagogy, there's a million ways to do something. So if you put something out on one subject, like 
you know, on circular breathing, you could easily get negative comments about it. And that's scary for a lot of people. What like pushes you through that to continue to post so much? Trial by fire. <laughs> if, if you're listening and you're thinking about doing it, just do it. Just start it. Start the My Kate Warren music was a New Year's resolution in 2020. Shut the front door. Seriously? I had just spent a couple months working on my website. So I was about to launch my website. Okay. And I I was telling myself, I went, Kate, you know what would be way more useful than a website? Because at the time I didn't have Mm. any, not, I didn't have a personal Instagram. Mm. And I had no, I was like, you should, you should do it, Kate. You should just get on, get on the social media. And I felt like a fool. I remember vividly laying on my parents' couch over like Christmas break and I was trying to think of a username. And I was looking at my mom and said, mom, do I have to do this? This is dumb. I don't think, everybody's gonna think I'm an idiot. And then I did it. And for like a year, I still thought I was an idiot. I was like, man, Mm -hmm. nobody wants to hear me playing excerpts. Nobody wants to blah, blah, blah. And then people started asking me to play the excerpts or how I was thinking about blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh. People do want to hear me do this thing. People are interested in what I have to say. And Mm. now 15,000 people come to me and ask me questions about how something feels or how something sounds or how I approach something. And it's very obviously a very helpful tool for other people. So if you're not sure if you should do it, just do it. And it is, there's no right or wrong way to post on social media. I think that's a really exciting thing is that everyone finds their own groove. I know yours obviously has been a lot in like practice techniques and specific horn techniques. And that varies from account to account, but the content that you're putting out has to be something that you're excited about. Otherwise you're going to get so tired of posting it, or it's going to feel like a drag or this thing that you have to do for a while. We did like a bunch of the trends, like the voiceover trends. And I hated it. No, I can't do them. Miserable because every time you open it up, I'm like, this is not creative. I am literally just repurposing somebody else's content. It doesn't feel authentic to me. You know, I think this is like what is a popular thing to do. So I guess I'll just try it. At the same time, I'm glad I tried it because now I know that I just hate doing it. I won't do it anymore unless it's like something that really, really stands out and fits for some bizarre reason. But it does take a lot of time to figure that out and find your own voice. How has your content changed over the last couple of years? Were you posting mostly just examples of you playing at the beginning? And I know now it's a lot more education. My content has changed a lot. I mean, it's it's still changing. I consider my online presence to be a very fluid, moldable thing that I I expect to continue changing throughout (laughs) the next couple of years. And if it doesn't, we've got bigger problems. (laughs) Um, I I did start out. So it was my New Year's resolution was to make the page. But really, the New Year's resolution, I had all these practice videos on my phone. Mm. I would take the videos and I would never listen to them. Ever. So the, the resolution was I had to make the page and I had to post once a week a video of my plane, which would require me to listen to my plane. Hmm. So it, it began as a tool for my own personal growth in the practice room. I am going to make this deal with myself so that I have to listen to my plane, which will in turn make me better. And that was the only purpose it served. Um, it eventually turned into people like asking me like, oh, hey, like that, that was a really great chassis five. Like, how do you think of playing that? And so I, I started with some carousels and eventually that turned into like educational videos, which is now almost exclusively what I do. I post very little of my own playing, but mo- I post a lot of like, okay, here are exercises that you can do to work on this. Or here is a practice plan broken down step by step. Um, 
and that just feels good. I, I feel good putting that on the internet. I'm like, mm. I'm making the world a better place. I'm making it easier for people to do things. Um, so it's still, it's very self-serving. I think it's also what we like to consume is generally what we put out a little bit more too. Like if you like educational content, you like hearing how other people approach things. It's probably exciting for you to make that content too. Cause it's again, like putting back in what you're taking out, like you said with DCI, that if this is what I enjoy doing and I'm learning for, from this type of content, then it only makes sense to share this so that more people can see it. Not saying like copying people's content or anything like that, but if you're learning from that type of material, then you're more likely to want to create it yourself. So if you like people playing excerpts, make videos of you playing excerpts. It doesn't have to be overcomplicated in any way. Now, when it comes to social media, do you have any like tips that you frequently share with people if they're looking at getting started other than just jumping in? Are there resources and tools that you like to use? Any software programs that you use frequently? I use Canva. I love Canva. Yeah. Um, that's where all my carousels get made. I, my reels, I just make in the reels editor. I don't use any fancy stuff. I, I probably should. <laughs> uh, have you had any issues with the glitches? I know sometimes like I'll create a reel and and then it just disappears. Like the whole thing yep. is gone. You do it all over again. Yeah, that's always really fun. <laughs> I don't know. Just make make the content that you want to make. Don't make yeah. content to make content. Um, content for content's sake is never good for you or good for your audience. But you also mm-hmm. don't have to care about your audience. You can make things just for yourself. And like that doesn't always feel good. Yeah. But it's al- it's allowed to be okay. I think for a lot of musicians and artists, we go into the career and we've got this like mindset around it that you have to do it. You're doing art for the sake of art. Like you're playing music for the sake of the music and like having a career, like being focused on money and success, being focused on a follower count or any of these kind of vanity metrics is a negative, right? Because you're supposed to just do it because you love it. And that's the passion. And that's why you're an artist. Um, I'm sure your parents have struggled with this. Yeah. yeah. Sure, your parents. I love. I love this plenty. Being able to afford groceries, um, putting gas in my car. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a hard thing to reconcile, though. I think at the beginning, for a lot of musicians, like you get out of grad school or undergrad, and you're on your own, Mm -hmm. and you're trying to find this balance of, I still love to play for the sake of playing, and I have to do the art now for pay, which means that I'm doing the art the way someone else is telling me on their terms. And it's hard to find that piece, I think, for many musicians. What's cool about what you're doing right now is it's totally yours. Like you have taken even positions that you've worked with and made it your own and it's your own content, your own creation. And you're, it seems on the, on the surface, at least, as it presents that you are doing the things that make you happy in your art and in your education. Um, have there been any moments where you've either struggled with that reconciliation or have there been any moments, especially with social media that you've almost just quit? I've never almost quit social media. I take breaks all the time. I take breaks in horn playing and I take breaks in being a content creator. Best thing (laughs) I can do for myself is take breaks. Big fan. Um, You know, I think, and I was going to say too, like a lot of people want like that three to five days a week of posting. And it sounds like that's not your jam. You just post when it comes. I, I do tend to post like every other day, but I don't create every mm. other day. I create like okay. five days a month. I do it all at once. Mm. <laughs> be, I, and awesome. I do it when I have energy. I don't go like, oh yeah, these four days I'm going to write content. Uh, I'll be like, oh, I'm feeling really inspired today. Let's write down ideas. Let's flesh out a couple posts. 
oh, awesome. I'm feeling creative today. Let's take all these ideas and put them into Canva and make them pretty. Um, but I don't, gosh, if I had to create every other day, I would die. It's a lot. It's a lot. And I think people don't realize like a lot of big brands, big accounts, they're not doing it on their own. No. A lot of people are hiring editors. someone. Yeah. Yeah. They've got editors. They've got strategists that are working with them. You know, big influencer accounts that you're seeing. It is not a one man operation, even though it's a one face operation. And that's an important thing to realize that social media, you know, we talk about being like a highlight reel, but you also get to hide a lot of that stuff because you just don't, you don't know what you don't know is going on behind the scenes. And it's hard to to judge what could be happening without knowing all that background information or even seeing it firsthand. Do you have any support in your social media or are you a true no. one-man operation? <laughs> I'm, I'm a one-man show. It's really impressive. And if you haven't looked at Kate's accounts, obviously we talk about Kate Warren Music on Instagram and TikTok. I mean, you're looking at like 15, 20,000 followers on each platform. It's a really sizable following that you've created, especially for something that was just supposed to be like a practice, <laughs> a practice uh, regimen for you and, and kind of encouragement. But is there anything that you know, obviously you promote your book and your education through that and the curriculum that you've got, but is there anything that you do to monetize your content creation outside of just that book and creating content on a regular basis? I am monetized on Instagram. So Instagram pays me a little bit of money every month for views on reels, which is, it's not great, but it's better than a kick in the pants. Um, <laughs> I do. I, I get almost all my private students through my Instagram. So through though, that's technically not through like the content I'm making through the resources that I've created, people mm. have decided they want to be my students. And then I have that, that recurring income. And that really has been some of the biggest benefit money-wise from my social media presence. Does that mean you're teaching mostly online at this point? Yeah. Uh, more than half of my studio is online. That's I like awesome. teaching on Zoom. I had an unpopular opinion. Uh, I don't have to commute to teach on Zoom. <laughs> you know, probably not as unpopular as you think. I think there's a really big group of teachers now that are stoked to not have to travel or find a studio rental space or like coordinate all of that. It's way more flexible for their students. So yes, like does it have cons and complications? Of course, but it can work really well. And obviously your students are having success and they also have this backing of all of the other content that you're putting out to help them practice, which is so cool. Do you think a lot of your students, um, I mean, obviously they're finding you because of your social media, but are they using that ongoing? Like, do they come to lessons and ask follow-up questions about content you posted that week? Oh, absolutely. Um, That's so cool. I, I have a student, he, he was working on multiple tonguing for a drum corps audition, actually. And it was right around when I was working up some double tonguing for my recital. So I had posted a couple videos on multiple tonguing and he came to his lesson. He goes, I was watching that video you put about like airflow and triple tonguing. And, and I think that really unlike unlocked something. Can we like dig into that? Can we work on it? And we, we did, we worked on it and it got a lot better. That's awesome. That's awesome. Cause sometimes hearing it a different way helps. Like even if it's the, even, even if it's the same exact discussion that you had in the lesson, hearing it when someone's ready to receive that information is really helpful. And they're not always ready in the lesson. The lesson's the same time every week. And just the way that you know, maybe you don't feel inspired to create content every other day. And maybe it's just a couple times a month. Sometimes our students are totally on for a lesson and sometimes, sometimes not so not. much. <laughs> yeah. And that's okay. That's like part of being an educator is you got to roll with those punches too. But that's a really fun benefit and bonus. I know a lot of my students, like I put out a practice technique video a couple of weeks ago. A lot of my students follow me on social media, which is hysterical because I'm literally talking about marketing for students and they still think that's entertaining for some bizarre reason, but they do. And 
one of my students came in, came in and he was like, Hey, like you talked about what we did in my lesson. And I was like, so proud of showing all my friends, like, here's the clips of what we did and how we practiced this. And it was really fun to see that excitement around it, that it's not just beneficial for us. It's not just beneficial for our audience, but the students that are working with us on a regular basis truly get something out of that. And it's so worthwhile and inspiring to do that. Is there anything that you wish was different in your content creation? Anything that you're working on or you want to incorporate more of? No, I'm having a good time. That's awesome. I hope that I continue having a good time. When it doesn't <laughs> feel like a good time, I hope that those don't feel like good times go away faster. Hmm. Is that usually how you know when to take a break? Like it's just oh, yeah. burnout? Uh, I, I talk about mental health a lot on my social media. That mm -hmm. does not mean I am good at it. It's something that I think we have to be aware of and practicing and everything, but I, I think we all talk about it more because we're all searching, especially in, in music. And I'm sure this ties back into your research too. Being a woman in music can be very deflating in a lot of ways. Like it just feels like the opportunities are a little bit more limited. You don't see that representation. So it feels like the, the ceiling is a lot lower for you and it can feel a little frustrating. And when you're getting feedback that matches that probably even more frustrating at the same time, we are starting these conversations around mental health that we talk a lot about, but not everyone has it figured out. And honestly, I don't think anyone has it truly figured out yet. And we're, we're working on it, but God, it's a, it's a process. Are there things, I mean, obviously taking breaks helps, but are there other things that, especially since you are balancing so much, have been a positive impact in taking care of yourself over the last few years? My one and only hobby is rock climbing. I am obsessed with rock climbing. It is my main personality trait outside of being a musician. I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> my friends hate me. Um, okay, indoor, outdoor, what, is, what yes. do you typically prefer? All. <laughs> if it's not cold, outdoor. When it's cold, indoor. That's awesome. <laughs> um, but so for me, like, especially finding balance between being a full-time student and essentially a full-time worker and a full-time content creator, mm. um, I never skip rock climbing. It is, mm. in, it is a calendared event. It is in my calendar. And if someone says, oh, I'd like to meet with you, blah, 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 or, oh, you need to be, no, I am busy. And I don't tell them that that busy is rock climbing. That busy is rock climbing, especially if it's a Thursday night. If I can't, whoever's listening, if I've said no to something on a Thursday night, it is because <laughs> the rock gym was more important than you. Uh, oh, that's and, I, and I will always go to that climbing session because yeah. I, I, I typically climb ropes, but even when I don't and I'm bouldering, I climb with people. Um, so I have that as not only a physical outlet, but a social outlet. I go and I'm with my friends and none of them do band and none of them are teachers. And yep. it's awesome. Yep. I've had people ask me before, like, how did you marry a non-musician? Like they don't understand what you're doing. I'm like, oh no, he understands plenty. And also I don't have to talk about music all the time. I think there's something really relieving about that. So I, I totally understand. Totally weird aside, when I was an undergrad, I went to University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee for my undergrad, and they were opening an outdoor office at the time in the rec center. So I worked for about a year and a half at the Active Pursuits office, and I led rock climbing trips all the time and loved it. We used to go up to Devil's Lake. It was a blast. Um, definitely, like I was learning. It was a newer hobby of mine, but it was so much fun. But I had multiple professors pull me aside and say, you're going to break a finger. You're going to hurt yourself. Your hands are raw. Like You have to stop. So I stopped, hugely disappointing. But have you gotten that feedback before? As people occasionally express concern when I tell them like, 
oh yeah, I took like a massive whip at the track at the track crag this weekend and I almost broke my ankle. I can't walk today. Um, <sighs> but I, to put a nice bow actually on what you're saying is like I don't let people say that to me because I mm. am so much more than a than a French horn player or a lessons teacher. I am Kate Warren, and although professionally right now I'm Kate Warren Music, in, in my real life, I'm not I'm not a musician, I'm not a teacher, I am a rock climber, I am a reader, I am a baker. Like I, I put so much value to who I am and what, my, what I value outside of my career. So maybe looping back to our conversation about mental health, like having those things outside of what you do mm-hmm. that define you is super important to keeping that balance. Because I can juggle all of those things, but as long as I have the rest of me to touch base with and reconnect with and come back down to earth with, that's fine. I think we see a lot of musicians that go, I think, so far the other way that, you know, because I'm going to do music, this has to be what I live, breathe, eat, sleep. It has to be music all the time. Like I have to be listening. I've been there. To recordings. I've done that. Yeah. It's yeah. Not like that pressure of you know, like you get in my car and there better be classical music playing or there better be something that's, you know, related because I have to be thinking about that all the time. And it's just not realistic to be a one dimensional person. And I think it's limiting and it creates a lot of internal conflict. It really does. How did you get into rock climbing? I I want to cycle back to that for a second because it's something, it's kind of a niche activity. It's not a huge, it's more popular. I think it's growing, but it's not like a hugely popular activity. Was it just like checking out the local gym or something else? One of my best friends who is also a French horn player, um, he came to me and he's like, I've always wanted to do this. I need somebody to do it with me. Will you do it with me for mm. one month? And then we can quit. If I don't like it, we can quit. But I've always wanted to do it and I just need someone to do it with me. And outside of music, I'm one of those people who will always do something. You want to run a marathon? Cool, I will do it with you. You want to do rock climbing for a month? Cool, I will do it with you. Um, Kate sounds did. like the most awesome teacher ever. <laughs> like, yes, let's do it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it's, uh. it's helping me get out of my I hate change and I don't want to try anything new phase. Uh. Um, but we, we went rock climbing for a month and we both were like, yeah, this is awesome. Let's do this forever. <laughs> Oh, that's and, so uh, cool. We don't live anywhere near each other anymore, but we both are still very avid climbers. That's awesome. Okay, so you mentioned like baking and reading as well. So outside of music, what are some of the things that you like to do? What do you like to bake, for example? I really like to make um, butterscotch. I, I guess it's technically not baking. Oh. It's more cooking. I have been perfecting my butterscotch recipe for years. Oh my gosh. So around the holidays, everyone just gets a ton of treats from you. And like the music department is filled with goodies. That no, sounds I don't incredible. share. <laughs> I have a horrible sweet tooth. I keep them all to myself. That's hysterical. I was say, my toffee is my go-to. Like come December, the, the kitchen is rocking with like toffee and cookies and everything. That's so funny. And do you read mostly about music or do you tend to no. stay out of the music genre? No, no, I don't read about music at all. <laughs> I, I read a couple of interesting books about music this year, but that's not my mainly I read a lot of like mm. nonfiction and history, historical books. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Finding this balance is a challenge for everyone. And I think it's inspiring to hear someone who is prolific in their music career, but is also very confidently not just a musician. So if you again, let's jump back to maybe high school, early undergraduate, Kate, what are things that you would tell yourself that you know now about your career, 
not even necessarily advice, but just the path and the things that you would want to spend more time on than maybe back then you were limiting a little bit? Take breaks, take time mm. off. I, a part of me wants to say do less um, because believe it or not, there was a phase in my life where I did a lot more than this. <laughs> so in context, do less. You're still going to do a lot, but do less. Um, man, just the power, the power of rest is so rejuvenating for what you want, like the things that you want to be doing. And it may not always feel good to take time off or to take a break or to go watch TV for three hours instead of grind out an essay for three hours. But sometimes that break will make doing the thing later so much easier. Um, and th that's really like, I think all throughout undergrad, I used to never, I would not even take a single day off of horn playing. I'd be like, yeah, I haven't taken a day off in four months. I took two days off this week. I took 11 days off while I was on vacation. Uh, like, I think I made a post in November. It was like, I've taken a day off every week for a month and a half. It was great. And I am a better horn player for it. Hmm. Do you feel like you need to come back from those breaks? Even the extended ones? Obviously, there's like a little, you know, kind of clear out the cobwebs if it's been like a couple weeks. But do you feel more focused and engaged right away when you return? I do mentally, but also something somebody told me that was really impactful once was that every time you take time away from your instrument, when you come back, you do, you have to rebuild a little bit. And that's an opportunity to A, fix something you didn't like about your playing. That's an opportunity to relearn better, to improve mm. what you were doing, having like shaken a little of that muscle memory. So, oh, I need to redefine this, but I'm going to redefine it at a higher level. And something like an idea that I've loved working through lately, and I've been trying to figure out how to put into a social media post, but I don't know how to say it the right way, is that taking all these breaks and learning the skills of how to come back, thinking about my playing at a higher level, have, like having that elevated approach has been one of the most beneficial things to my playing this, this mm -hmm. year, well, like calendar year, not 2023. Um, <laughs> In the last like 10 days. <laughs> the, yeah, the first you know, 10 in days 2023, the, the most. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but like, I'm like just finding, amazing. <laughs> taking that opportunity of, oh, yeah, I, I took the weekend off. Yeah. And now I get to be even better when I come back because I have to redefine all those things that are a little, mm. little bit rusty. Well, and when you're recording yourself often, which I know you're not doing as much now, that's not totally your content, but when you are recording yourself often, when you come back after a break, you're probably a lot more aware because some of those things that you, get used to hearing in your playing you just we all do we just dismiss them like eh, it's a later issue or it's not that big of a deal or you just get so used to hearing that repetitively that it just is mm -hmm. and we focus on other things instead and some of those core issues are are difficult to address i know i've got like whole you know sd cards like micro sd cards from my zoom recorder from grad school that i never went back and listened to yeah like you you do record it it's just well, I, I think I know what I'm going to hear on that recording, so I'm just going to go ahead and skip it. Like, I know where I messed up, so I'll just move on. And, you know, it's easy enough to dismiss a lot of those things. But I actually pulled it out about three months ago. Um, I was recording with my students, and I had a whole bunch of SD cards in the bottom. And she's like, what are those? Uh, Grad school. <laughs> great question. <laughs> yeah. And I went back and listened to some of them, and there were things that I absolutely was dismissing or excusing away in my playing that now I'm obviously a little hyper aware of, but it's good to have distance between that, I think, and, and going back and revisiting those can make a really big impact in your practicing and your, your progress. Do your students record themselves a lot? 
No. Do I tell them to record themselves? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> have you I have been any... that student who doesn't do it? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> do you have any students that also have social media accounts? Like are any of them posting their own recordings? None, none that run their own social media accounts. A mm. lot of them follow me and I like, they'll bring up stuff in their lessons or they'll, I, I a couple students will send me like practice videos and I, I, that's, I think very helpful for them. Mm-hmm. Um, well, especially if you give critique on that and I, especially around audition season, a lot of my students will do this too. That does force them to listen to it. Cause when you give them a timestamp and you say at this, I heard this, and this is what we're going to do to fix it they have to go back and hear it again. <laughs> so they go back to that timestamp and they're listening too. And that really does help. It's kind of this like asynchronous lesson idea of having someone send you that video and getting response. And I'm curious too, since you have this curriculum with Conselmer, do you have students using that in your studio right now and applying that in their lessons? Or are you mostly seeing students that are a little bit more advanced since they're finding on social media? I do have plenty of beginner students. Um, I don't teach them from that course because I'm a real person and I can just teach them the same things in person. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to ask them to watch a video when I could just tell them what's in the video. Um, <laughs> I do. I, I had to create a lot of um, not resources. Um, I wrote music for that course, um, essentially wrote lo- like the Kate Warren version of essential elements book one and two. Um, so with, especially with my like brand new to French horn players, I, we absolutely go through that packet because I wrote it mm. and gosh darn, I'm going to use it. <laughs> like I put a lot of time and energy into it. And someone's I did. Gonna, it someone's took gonna play too it. many hours of my life and <laughs> people are going to play those little melodies. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. I know we're kind of wrapping up the conversation a little bit. So I want to recap some of what we talked about and then also look forward, which I'm really excited about. So Kate, you're juggling all these things. You're in your second master's right now. And that is wrapping up, I think this spring, correct? Yep. I'm almost done. Almost done. What next? What are you seeing for yourself post second master's degree, Kate? Um, Currently I'm applying to college teaching jobs. Hopefully I can get a college level academic job next year. Um, if not, I have a couple other frying pans that are going on, but I'm also because of all my marching band and drum corps connections, looking into moving to Houston to teach some band down there, teach lessons down there, um, awesome. do the, the Texas lessons thing, but we'll see. I'm surprisingly not worried about it. <laughs> I think you have enough going on right now and also enough of a presence that you probably don't have to be. And I think that's the thing. If I could have someone take anything away from this episode, it's that just telling people what you're working on on a regular basis leads to so many open doors. Because if people know, then they can help you. And if they don't know, then they can't help. And they also can't buy from you. <laughs> they can't find your course. They can't find your book. They have no idea that it even exists. And it's a basic tenet of marketing, but every musician is their own personal brand. Every musician is their own business. And you have to tell everyone that you're open for business and accepting work so they can actually give it to you and send it your way. So I know you'll absolutely land on your feet. It's going to be really exciting to see where you end up in the last or in the next year, next 12 months, especially, but I really appreciate you sharing so openly at this stage of what you've been working on and and the incredible journey that you've had, especially in the last few years, you know, post post COVID and all the wildness that's come with that. Goodness gracious. Is there any talking with me today, Kelly? 
Of course. Is there any final thought? Like, I, I know I'm kind of recapping my my thoughts from today's episode. Is there any final takeaway that you wish someone would have from everything that you've shared today? Chase the dreams that you have. If you mm. want to do something, do it. Even if you think you might look foolish or you might misstep or you might backtrack or someone will think poorly of you for it. If it's something that you want to do, try. What's the worst that could happen from trying, right? And even the people that maybe aren't going to have a positive opinion, they were never going to help you anyway. <laughs> they were never going to actually have an impact. So it's totally okay to set those aside. That's awesome. Thank you again for sharing. I think this was really impactful and you've got so many fun things in the work, but works, but also so many impactful things that you've already put out into the world to impact music and music education in particular. So thank you again for doing all of that work and that research and putting that time and energy and effort into this. But thank you for being willing to talk about it. This has been super exciting. 